Welcome to another episode of Out of the Blank Podcast. Steve, it's a pleasure to have you on the show. Would you like to introduce yourself to everyone out there listening? Uh, sure. My name is Steve Ferron. I'm a professor in, in the Department of Psychiatry at the State University of New York, Norton College of Medicine in Syracuse, New York. Uh, I am a clinical psychologist, not a psychiatrist, but in the Department of Psychiatry. Uh, and although I did see patients many years ago, uh, since the late 1990s, I've devoted myself 100% to research and to working with the, the community. So, for example, I am president of the World Federation of ADHD, and I curate a, a website about evidence for ADHD called ADHDevidence.org. Now, how'd you get interested in learning about ADHD? Well, it really happened to me when I first entered academia. I was a young man. I finished a postdoc uh, doing work mostly actually in um, schizophrenia and uh, bipolar disorder. And I was also then at that point uh, made the acquaintance of a colleague uh, at the Massachusetts General Hospital uh, who was studying ADHD. And he, he actually had needed some of the skills that I had um, studying families. Um, and I became very intrigued with the work that he was doing. And I realized more importantly that in the late 1990s, there was a lot of things we didn't know about ADHD. We knew a lot about schizophrenia, a lot about bipolar disorder. They had been studied. A lot of research money had been spent on it, but ADHD really had not been studied. So to me, it was, it was really very intriguing um, that this problem of kids uh, that also was a, a problem. And I say of kids because it wasn't, we didn't think then that it was affected adults. Uh, it wasn't accepted in the 1990s that it affected adults, although now we know that it is. Um, so it was very in intriguing to me that he was a problem that was a, created serious problems in the lives of children and eventually adolescents and adults. And yet all over the media, there was all this, this crazy talk about what ADHD was. It was mis really a misunderstood uh, situation. And so that was, really, that was really what attracted to me to it, that there was so much, it was in such need of research. And so I just, I really devoted my research career since then to improving our knowledge base on ADHD. Is it because nobody ever took it seriously? Like whenever I always say I have ADHD or something like that, I tend to hyper-focus or I tend to be all over the board on certain things. Um, people would just go, oh, you got too much energy. It's like, I wish I had that. And they would laugh and something like that. I'm like, yeah, but let me tell you something. I only sleep two hours a night. Um, I've tried everything possible to try and get more sleep, go to bed early. And I feel like I, I might even do worse, in my opinion, off of getting way too much sleep. I tend to have to do like a excessive amount of cardio, like six hours worth of cardio, which I consider fun, but people are like, that that's is, a lot. It's common. No, that's common. It's, co it's common for people with ADHD to have to do a lot of exercise to get to sleep. But it, you make a good point, And that is that particularly in kids, um, the problem was seen as, oh, this is just normal. These are just kids running around having a good time. Why are we calling it a disorder? Um, and they, they're, of course, just focusing on the hyperactivity component and the impulsivity component. And, course, we'd say, well, we call it a disorder because if you're running around and you run into the street and a car hits you, that's a big problem. And if you're inattentive and impulsive, you're more likely to do that than not. Um, but it's actually quite interesting that we know now um, that ADHD, if we think about ADHD as a collection of symptoms, this is how we think about it in the research world. It's a collection of, of very specific symptoms that define the disorder, inattention, hyperactivity, impulsivity. Those symptoms, if you look, if you go to any population in America, United States, Australia, and you just measure people off the street on these symptoms, what you find is that most people have some level of ADHD symptoms. 
it's kind of like blood pressure. Everybody has a blood pressure, but some people have hypertension because the blood pressure is too high. Um, so that's one of the reasons why people tended to think that ADHD wasn't, was just kind of normal because it's really just the extreme of this normal variation in the population. And of course, that's that we think nowadays that, that that's true. It is the extreme, but it's, it becomes a problem just like high blood pressure is a problem when you get too, too many of these symptoms in your life and they cause serious impairments. Now, what are some symptoms that like people of the general public who might not have ADHD might have some similarities to? Because I was trying to understand ADHD and if it was on like some type of disorder thing, because I had talked to some people in education that said like it's a learning disability and we consider that like a a problem where we would put you in a certain category and I'm looking at it. It's not on the autism spectrum. I Googled it. It's not Correct. on there. It says it is not, it is, it is there's not on the similarities autism. there. And I was like, Oh my God. It's like when, I don't know, to me, that just gave me a little bit of fear. I was like, well, I don't want it to hinder my ability to do anything and people treat me differently. I kind of want to be accepted as who I am. But then I start to notice like, yeah, the impulsivity type things. Um, so you know, in your, in your question, what you have to, I have to tell you how in the world of, in the clinical research world, I mean, the clinical world and the research world, we, we think about these things in very specific ways that are different from the way people talk about it on Instagram and Reddit and so forth. So when, for example, when I talk about symptoms of ADHD, I'm talking very specifically about one, one set is being inattentive, and that's kind of being spacey, looking out the window when you're supposed to be looking at the blackboard, uh, not paying attention in a conversation when pe people are talking, so you don't remember what happened later on. Intention is a symptom. Um, not remembering things is common in ADHD too, and it's because of inattention. Impulsivity, acting without thinking, that's an, there's another set of symptoms that are related to this, this, this construct. Then there's the hyperactivity being very active, more active than usual. In adults, we uh, the hyperactivity tends to diminish. And for example, adults with, kids with ADHD literally can't stay in their chair. They'll get out of the chair in the classroom and they'll walk, walk around and run around. Adults can stay in their chair typically, but they, they, they really don't like it. Like they don't like sitting in, in meeting for an hour. They feel like they have to get up. And if they can get up, like in some meetings, they'll, in fact, in, in most meetings I go to, typically you'll see one or two adults who are kind of sitting, they're standing in the back of the room or they're getting up to get coffee a lot. They probably have a lot of ADHD symptoms because that's the, their hyperactivity is manifest in that way. Now, there are other, many, many other things people with ADHD experience. For example, people with ADHD are more likely to get depressed for all sorts of reasons. But depression is an ADHD. It can be an outcome of the ADHD. So we have to kind of separate what's ADHD and what are outcomes. Sometimes we call them associated features of the problem or of the like disorder. burnout. Burnout. Burnout's a great example. If one of the things we found is that people with ADHD. Uh, we some people have studied high achieving people with ADHD, and they're out there. Uh, and typically, what's found is that people with high achievers with ADHD have to work harder than their peers to get to the same level. And that leads to burnout. Is that just because that they feel like they need to work harder? Or is that like, for me, I feel like I need to work harder sometimes, but also I've ex I'm probably in experiencing burnout now where it gets hard to even sit down. What usually used to be really, really easy for me, unless I'm super interested in the topic, I can't even, even book an email sometimes as well too, it becomes difficult. I end up wanting to give up after one or two. And it's like, how do you fix that? Do you give yourself some more balance? Do you try? But every time I start a task, I end up starting 50 and never finishing one. Well, and there you have it. So what happens is that the person with ADHD is they're procrastinating, they're moving from task to task. And so it's when I say work hard, I mean, it's taking them longer to get the job done. So they may have to work a 12 hour day instead of an eight hour day to get the same amount of work done because 
of that inability to focus on tasks that are not intrinsically rewarding. And so it's kind of boring. So, you know, you move on to the next thing, but then the boss comes in and says, hey, where's that report? And you're like, oh, I better get back to that. You get back to that and, you know, it's not an, it's not an efficient way to work. And so it takes longer to get stuff done. Now, you mentioned with adults, they kind of handle the energy thing a little bit better, and it might be kind of, I guess, less focused on because, I mean, you mentioned before that nobody even really recognized that it was in adults. Is that just because people that grow up with it tend to find ways to cope with it? Like I kind of learned from never being on medication when doctors recommended I was when I was a kid to learning how to cope with it to where I can have normal conversations and seem very balanced. But then once you start talking to me, I'll end up ranting and then you'll start seeing the energy spike up and I'm always up at like two o'clock in the morning. Yeah. So it's, you're right. And what happens, there is a, we call it an age dependent decline in the symptoms of hyperactivity and impulsivity. Um, we think there may be biological reasons for that, um, which we can get into if you want. Um, and some of it also is, has to do with adults being more able to control themselves than a child is the, because as remember as you're growing up your brain is developing the brain is not fully developed we think now until mid-20s or the late 20s so there's a part of the brain called the we call it the prefrontal cortex that is essentially the control center it's controlling what everything else is doing and so when we're when a person's being impulsive the the brain the frontal lobes are not putting the brakes on when they should put their brakes on and so the person says something they blurt out an answer they shouldn't do that um, but as we age in the period up until that age 30, um, those frontal lobes are still developing. And what happens for some people with ADHD, they we think they develop to the point where they have better control. And actually, in, in about two-thirds of, of cases, ADHD basically totally disappears by the mid-20s. Um, I'm sorry, by one-third. <laughs> it disappears in one-third. Two-thirds of, of kids continue to have ADHD as young adults. You mentioned some of the biological functions. Well, the, when I say biological, for example, one of them is the is the frontal lobes are developing, and so the, the brain is becoming, uh, like I say, it's becoming more typical. So we know there are, if you take a look at a group of people, kids with ADHD, and a group of kids without ADHD, and we do brain scans. There's two things that's important about that. One is that if if a radiologist would look at the brain scan of anyone with ADHD, they wouldn't find anything strange. They would say this is a normal brain. There's nothing. Um, very different about an ADHD brain versus a non-ADHD brain. But when we, when we look at a lot of data together, we can see subtle differences. So I have like, and literally lots, like we have several thousand brain scans that um, it's part of a big consortium, a part of called Enigma. Uh, you can Google it, the Enigma ADHD project, where uh, this group, we have looked at, we've compared brains of people with, with ADHD. We find Real small differences, but reliable differences in, in children in areas of the brain that are involved in self-regulation, our ability to regulate and control our own behaviors. So we think what happens in adulthood is, well, I shouldn't say we think, we know from some studies that those brain differences that we see get much smaller in adulthood. So they're, much, they're actually harder for us to see in our research projects. Um, they literally kind of go away. And we think that those changes in the brain the ADHD brain is becoming more typical with age, but not for everybody. Some people, some people with ADHD continue to have these small differences that accumulate and cause the symptoms of ADHD. Is there a reason why that some adults kind of keep the symptoms of ADHD? Is that something that you've been able to narrow down? Well, you know, one reason is we think that their uh, their brain is continues to 
lack, if you will, the, I call them the, the ability to self-regulate. Okay, let me just break that down for you because it's not obvious to your listeners. Um, a child is not very good at regulating themselves. They're running all around. They're, you know, they're grabbing things. They're doing things, all sorts of things that they shouldn't do. And we expect that because they're just two, three years old. They're, you know, they're, they're out of, they can be out of control. Part of growing up is learning to control ourselves. So when we're two years old, our parents are constantly telling us, don't do this, don't do that. Teachers saying, stop that, don't do that. We're getting regulated and controlled by other folks who are kind of helping our behavior focus on what we need to do. Obviously, when we become adults, we need to do that ourselves. That's called self-regulation. The reason we can self-regulate is the prefrontal cortex of our brain has become developed, and we've learned things from our parents and from our teachers and from peers. We've learned things that help us regulate ourselves. Um, so one ex good example might be you're driving down the street and or driving on a highway, let's say, and there's somebody cuts you off, and, you, and many people get really upset by that. Um, it really bothers them. Now, most people will self-regulate. They'll say, okay, that guy's an idiot, but I need to focus on what I'm doing. I need to get where I'm going and just let's move on, forget about it. They self-regulate. They soothe themselves. They get their negative emotion off of themselves and they can focus on driving the car. Sometimes the person with ADHD can't do that. They kind of have like almost an anger attack. They get really angry and they're not, they can't bring their anger back down so that they can focus on what they're doing. And so they might do something inappropriate, like they might speed up and chase the person uh, because they want to give them the finger or something like that. Or, you know, they might have an accident because they're not paying attention because they're, they're, they're getting out of control. There's nobody in the car, like there's no parent saying, hey, slow down, you know, when you're learning to drive. There's no parent there telling them what to do. They have to do it themselves. So that self-regulation improves as the brain matures. So some people we say remit their ADHD, the ADHD goes away because their brain is improving, but not everybody. Most people with ADHD continue to need the medication to help with that self-regulation. And sometimes in adulthood, uh, there's a special therapy called cognitive behavioral, cognitive behavior therapy for ADHD, where uh, some of my colleagues have designed special programs to help teach people with ADHD how to essentially how to regulate themselves. What do you think is a bigger struggle for someone with ADHD? Do you think it's the understanding, I guess, a little bit more about yourself, or do you think it's the stigma that comes with it? I always kind of, nobody ever really talked about, or at least I've never heard anybody really mention about it until I talked to someone on my show about it, which was like the social isolation aspects of things that you really don't know. Because I, I wasn't a popular kid in high school. A lot of it was being called annoying because of the fact this is how my personality is, and it necessarily does not fit in a real world scenario. If it's for a show, sure. <laughs> but it's kind of that social isolation aspect that I started noticing and experiencing when I was little to where now I kind of see it and it's different now. Like sometimes people would want to be by me because like, oh, Robbie's funny. He can crack a joke or something like that. But then it's in my head. It's like, well, that's not how it was when I was a kid. And it becomes like turns into ends up the ADHD manifests anxiety where it's now giving me that ramification, which is the anxiety aspect. Much like it can create depression. It gives me anxiety now. Right, right. Well, what, you, what you're saying there is that over time, it, a person's ADHD kind of accumulates other problems because on the one hand, there's a stigma from the outside world. There, you know, people will say, oh, you know, you're lazy. You're not getting your schoolwork done. What's wrong with you? You're smarter than that. Something's, you know, you're not, you're, 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 you're not paying attention on purpose. You're a problem child. 
um, peers, some peers will, you know, not want to associate with you. They'll just see, oh, this kid's too wild for me. And we know that, you know, kids with ADHD sometimes have trouble with, with friendships and that can lead to social isolation for sure. It can also lead to them getting to peer groups that are not healthy for them because, you know, kids that are kind of compulsive and overactive, those are the same kids who sometimes are, you know, it's an impulsive kid is more likely to try drugs than a non-impulsive kid. An impulsive kid is more likely to get involved in a little bit of, you know, as a child, maybe some petty criminal activity because they're not thinking, you know, before they act and they get into trouble. Um, so yeah, absolutely. The, so that that's on the one side, stigma is causing a big problem for people leading to depression, anxiety. But you mentioned lack of self-awareness. If one is not aware that they have this problem, then it's very confusing to them, right? Because they think they don't. Think, they start to think that they have to explain themselves, right? They, we're all trying to explain ourselves in the world, and if if part of the if if we take the explanation that we're lazy or we're stupid or we uh, we're not we're not trying hard enough, that's very that's a very negative thing. It's going to really hurt us. But if we have the explanation, wait a second, I've got this disorder that you know as doctors know about and can be treated, but I also have some personal responsibility to, to deal with it, uh, both through talking to my doctor and doing whatever I can to reduce those symptoms, that's how one moves forward and improves one situation. Um, but it's hard to do in a world of stigma where, you know, many kids never get diagnosed and treated because, you know, the parent doesn't think, doesn't realize that they have a problem. It's really, it's kind of sad, basically. It's really sad, actually. How do we change the stigma? Do you, do you see the stigma turning at all a little bit? Like, I mean, I know us talking about it helps and, um, a certain case, but also there's a lot of people that either say, "Oh, I have ADHD and I can ADHD and I can still do it too." And I'm like, "You don't have that though, but you you might have maybe a symptom of it, sure, but it doesn't seem like you actually have like the ability. Like they're not jumping up, they're not moving around. I know it's not just hyperactivity, but they're more functional. I guess I don't know if they're on. They could be taking some medication for it, sure, but I mean, it, they just don't seem like everyone uses it now, or it's maybe being misdiagnosed too much. I don't know if that happened a lot." Back in the day, a lot of these kids are usually my age and they're on something, but it's usually something to do with anxiety. It's not an ADHD medication where it doesn't make you feel comfortable. And it's like, then I even question for myself sometimes, do I even have ADHD? Is it in my head? Is it just something that I've just created at this point and I can just normalize whenever I want? But it's, I don't know, it just doesn't seem that easy. Well, that, well, by, by definition, a person with ADHD cannot quote, normalize whenever they want. Okay, it's 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 something because it's it, it's a problem with the ability to self-regulate. Um, the person with ADHD can create uh, what we call um, scaffolding around them. And so we know what a scaffold is. It holds things up, right? When we're kids, our scaffolds are our parents, our teachers, older peers that are helping us get, thing, get things done. When we're adults, we have to create our own scaffolding. A person with ADHD needs to develop methods to regulate themselves. So for example, I mean, nowadays everybody has a smartphone and that's great because with smartphones, you can have notifications, you can have a calendar right there. Um, you can control yourself by having your phone tell you what to do. Oh, it's, you know, it's almost 10 o'clock. We have to stop this interview because I need to do something else. Um, that becomes, that's a form of self-regulation where you're actively using devices in the world to build a scaffold around you to protect yourself from the inability to self-regulate. And that's extremely important for adults with ADHD. They need to try to find ways to 
get things done, ways to organize themselves um, that usually involve some kind of device or sometimes it's help from another person as well. Have you ever talked to anybody that has ADHD as an adult and get their experience if they feel like a problem person that just feels like, I don't know, they're not as equipped to be 100% functional member of society? That that's well. That's it's part of the stigma to say I'm a, you know it's a negative to say I'm a problem person is kind of a negative negative thing, right? It's, it's almost like I'm a bad person. It's the next it's <laughs> the next step is to say I'm a bad person. Um, I I wouldn't say I would say to that person I would say no, you're not a problem person. You're a person that has a problem. We all have problems in this life. There's very few people who have no problems. We all have some problem that we have to cope with. We have to move forward in. And so I always encourage people with ADHD to say, you're not an ADHD person. You're a person who has a diagnosis of ADHD. And because of that, you have to take certain measures to protect yourself so that you can move forward in your life in the direction that you'd like to move forward in. It's only part of you. It's not your, it's not your whole. When you start to define yourself as this is all I am, and then that suddenly erases other things that, you know, are maybe very positive in your life that you don't even, you don't think about because you focus too much on the ADHD and how it's, how it's causing problems. So I always encourage people with ADHD to look for the positive. In fact, when I was seeing patients, one of the things we would do, you know, we would literally do psychological assessments to try to find, okay, you know, what are the strengths and weaknesses that this, in the case of a child, this child has? I would say to the parents, okay, you know, your kid happens to be really good at fill in the blank. Maybe they, they were, you know, really good at, uh, could be art, could be drawing, could be really good at music. Maybe they're really good at, um, they had the, the kind of brain that was pretty good at fixing things. They well, there's a real strength here. We can build on this strength and that's going to help your child move forward in the world. You have to deal with the ADHD. We can't ignore it, but your child is not just ADHD. And as an adult, an adult, you're not just your ADHD. You're many things that um, you need to, that's come back to what you said about self-awareness. You need to be aware of your strengths as well as your weaknesses to move forward. I try and do something that's like the opposite of what you would normally probably do if you were going to recommend somebody do something with ADHD. I like to paint, which is a really kind of difficult thing for me to do because you have to sit down, but I like watching Bob Ross. The man can paint any He's pictures cool, he yes. wants. But <laughs> sitting down, then you have to wait for the canvas to dry, and that's always a difficult part for me because I'll get up, and the next thing you know, I'll be like, I'll come back to this in an hour. It'll be the next day. I'm like, oh, you know what? I forgot to come back to that canvas and finish what I was doing. But I enjoy the end process, that last piece when you finish it. It's just the whole process to do that, trying to sit down, listening to music, doing something to keep my mind going as I can still paint. But then it's keeping track of what you're doing. Like, do you find people are like, you would you recommend alternative methods? Maybe if you were going to treat somebody with ADHD of like just having an escape to do something that necessarily doesn't sound like ADHD, but kind of the opposite, like going to a beach and just relaxing. Like I find that once I get in that position, I can sit down and relax. You see, there's no, there's no, there's no one thing that I would recommend such as painting or going to a beach or reading a book or skateboarding. What I would say to a person with ADHD is, you need to find, let me back up a second. Okay, so there are things in life that are intrinsically rewarding. We just like to do them. Some people like to bake cupcakes. That's great. Some people like to paint. That's great too. Um, there are some things that are not intrinsically rewarding. And when I say intrinsically, I mean immediately rewarding. But we're doing it and we really like it. There's some things that where the rewards are more distant. Like, okay, we all know that we have to study to, to do well in school, maybe to get a good job later on after we after you graduate. 
But those rewards are in the distant future. And there, it's very hard for a person with ADHD to make that bridge. To, I say make that bridge, I mean to, to control their behavior by thinking, oh, if I study really hard and you know, in five years, I'll have a good job. It's just too distant. A uh, person with ADHD is more controlled by rewards that are very immediate. And this is why uh, you know, some parents will say, after the kid is diagnosed with ADHD, they say, well, no, she can't have ADHD. She plays video games for three hours straight. She's really focused on that. There's, you know, she can focus when she wants to. She's just not doing schoolwork because she's a pain in the neck. And what I try to explain to them is that, no, the video game is immediately rewarding. And you play a video game, you get feedback right away. You get all these levels that you're achieving. Boom, 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 boom. And that it's almost like a magnet that magnetizes the person with ADHD to that, to that, to that, what they're doing, what they're doing. Now, so what a person with ADHD needs to do when in the part of their life where there's activities they need to do that aren't intrinsically rewarding or immediately rewarding, like let's talk about a work situation, which might not be immediately rewarding or schoolwork. That's, a, that's probably the best one. The thing to do is to take it in small pieces and then reward yourself for achieving something like, okay, I'm going to work on this essay for an hour. And then after that, I work on that essay, I'm going to do something I really like to do for half an hour. So maybe I, you know, I work on the essay for an hour. I play video games for half an hour. Uh, find something that's rewarding to get you through the thing that's not as rewarding. Does that make sense to you? It's a, I Usually I'm, I'm a good fourth quarter person. Usually like I end up thinking I have all my work done and the next thing you know, it comes over there. You're like, you didn't do this, this, this. I used to work in a hotel industry and like being a houseman or something like that, you have to strip rooms and clean out trash. Well, I stripped 16 floors in a hotel. It's like 144 rooms, which is like unheard of, but it was because there was no other people there to do the job. And I just got my mouth shut and just basically did it. Just kept, as long as I can have the process going, like if I'm in the middle of it, I feel like I have to get this finished. I hate that situation because it puts me under stress of feeling like, oh my God, I waited to like the last minute of things. But I also do probably some of my best work around that time. Yeah. So if you think about it, what when you're doing work at the last minute, why are you do why are you doing that? Why what's motivating you for that at that time? To not lose my job or not get in exactly. trouble. Exactly. Exactly. Because there's an there is an immediate consequence, right? An immediate reward or punishment. Punishment is just the reverse of reward, right? So there's an immediate consequence. At the in the fourth quarter, and that's why people with ADHD procrastinate. And then when it comes to the fourth quarter, when it comes to they're close to the deadline, then they go gangbusters and they do what they can do. And all of a sudden, they can focus. And the reason they can focus is that that reward is right there in front of them. It's like having somebody right behind you saying, "Do this now, do this now," and and you do it. So one of the and that creates problems because sometimes you can't get everything done in the fourth quarter. Sometimes you need to work in the, in the, in the second quarter and third quarter as well, just because there's too much work to be done um, to get done in a compressed period of time. Um, yeah, no, it's, it's, it's a very common problem. It's really the procrastination is problem with being insensitive to rewards that are, are, are in the distant or in the relatively distant future. I don't know if this is like this for everybody, but even when I try and budget my time out to be able to make sure I have extra time so I'm not in that panic situation, I feel like I'm missing chunks of time. 
like my memory. I had to try and figure out if it was something with my memory, if I was going through some type of brain issue, but there was like literally chunks of time that would get sucked out of my head. That's why I had to get off social media because I would be on there and it would be like from 8 a.m. to like 8 p.m. And like look out the window. I'm like, it was only been like an hour. And I was like, no, it's been all day. But I'm even starting to find that now. Like I'll be working out, like I worked out this morning from midnight to 3 a.m. or something. I don't remember a single thing about the whole workout at all. I felt like next thing I looked at my phone, it was already an hour and a half in. I was like, what did I do? Yeah. Well, one one, one of the issues you're um, pointing to is the problems people have, people with ADHD have in, um, we call it uh, temporal processing. What that means is the brain's ability to process time and to understand time. So for example, very simple experiment, right? I bring a bunch of people into a room. I say, I want you to sit here. Um, we're going to get started with the experiment soon. I'll be, I'll, I'm going to come back in a little bit. And so I come back, let's say in five minutes, 10 minutes, doesn't really matter. And I come back to the room and then I say to the thing, okay, all I want you to do is to write on a piece of paper how many minutes I was out of the room. Now, who do you think is more accurate? Somebody with ADHD or somebody without ADHD? Probably without. I would feel like you've been gone for like an hour. Exactly, exactly. A person with ADHD has a more difficult time understanding, you know, just kind of processing time. So they might think I was gone for 20 minutes when I was gone for five. They might think I was gone for a minute when I was gone for 10. Um, that That is a problem, which of course affects in, can be affect them in daily life because they end up playing video games for too long when they when 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 they shouldn't. But a really good point about time uh, and so the processing of time. We don't really understand why that's happening, um, but it's it's a, it's, it's similar to solitary that, confinement, the temporal experience that prisoners experience in solitary confinement. Their passage of time is off because there's no windows, there's nothing like that to tell you what the time is. There's no clocks. Um, I've talked about that in the past on my show, but it was the only thing I could really find relatable before I started looking more into ADHD over the past couple of months. Um, just because I'd have people say like, oh, it's hard to listen to this guy because he's all over the board. I'm like, I can't help. This is how my brain starts thinking of a million different things at once. But does that mean that like aging your brain, is that anything to do? Like, is there any evidence to support that there could be some type of side effect of this whole Kind of, I feel like even with a lack of sleep, that ages your brain a little bit. I'm just worried about like with ADHD, do you see those people living as long as a normal life or are we getting shortened life experiences? Well, uh, sadly, it, there are data that um, show that people with ADHD have shorter lifespans um, on average, okay? I mean, people shouldn't get, they'd be worried they're going to drop dead tomorrow. Um, it's mostly due to... Um, Accidents, essentially, you know, if you don't pay attention, you're impulsive, you're more likely to have a car accident. And if you're more likely to have a car accident, you're more likely to die. Also, unfortunately, sadly, a small group, but a worrisome group of people with ADHD are more likely to commit suicide than the average person because life becomes so difficult and they get, um, they can get um, troubled with many things that cause depression, anxiety, all sorts of problems. And that sometimes leads to suicide. Anyone who's listening to this, who has feelings about suicide, they ought to certainly call a suicide hotline, talk to a friend or a parent, uh, because thoughts of suicide are very serious and they can get out of control. So if you're having those kinds of thoughts, definitely um, call a hotline, talk to somebody uh, that loves you because uh, that's something to need to get help with right away. But th we think those are the reasons why, uh, those, are, those are, I should say, we don't think, we know from studies that those are the main reasons why people with ADHD tend to die younger. There's also probably 
a smaller reason, and that is um, the people with ADHD are at risk for other kinds of health problems. For example, people with ADHD, not you, but on average, again, are more likely to be overweight and obese than people without ADHD. And of course, if you're obese, you're more likely to get sick and you're more likely to die younger because you get diseases. So that's another example of a reason why um, there's increased um, uh, increased early mortality among people with ADHD. Because people probably listening are probably going to think like, how can someone with a lot of energy be obese if you're going to be co probably constantly moving? But I would have to think it would have to be something to do with the reward factor that you get from eating. Um I work out insanely like a lot, but my eating habits, I have the worst. I go through a box of cereal like every two days. And it's just because there's a crunch factor I really, really enjoy that I haven't been able to find anywhere else. But it's also like when you're eating something, you tend to try and basically um, for me, maybe I eat a little bit of what's in front of my face. So it's mostly all like the task is this. You finish the task, not like portioning, not like, oh, I'm full and I'm going to drink some water and see if I still want food later. It's more like, here's what's in front of me. This is going to go away. Then I can get on to my next task. Right, right, right. Yeah, it's counterintuitive, um, but we think it's. And this is going to sound odd, but we've—I've uh, been one of the one of the areas I've worked in has to do with um, the genetics of ADHD. Where now we have studies where we've collected DNA from tens of thousands of people with and without ADHD, and we're beginning to understand the genetic causes of it—not uh, just ADHD, but also other problems. And it turns out that some of the same uh, genes that are involved in ADHD are also involved in causing obesity. And so we think that um, there's a, that genetic overlap is explaining why some people ADHD are, are more obese than they should be. Um, and it's because of these shared risk factors. We don't understand what they are, uh, but it's something we think about the biology of the disorder that ADHD shares with obesity. Sounds strange, I know, um, but this is cutting edge research. So when you're at the cutting edge, sometimes you find something and you can't explain it very well. But you, you, you know that it's real, and that it's something that for the next 10, 15 years, people are going to be researching to better understand. You find that a lot of doctors, or a lot of people in just the field in general are opening up to ADHD more now that there's more science and more research coming out about it? Gradually more and more. It's a very slow process. Like I said, in the 1990s, AD, adult ADHD wasn't accepted. And then me and a bunch of other people, a small group around the country started to study it and publish papers and show and you know show that it was it was a valid condition that it didn't disappear in adulthood. That was the belief. Uh, you know, people had written papers saying, "Oh, it just goes away in adulthood," and we showed that that wasn't the case. But believe it or not, even today, ADHD is underdiagnosed in adults. It's most doctors aren't even trained at all or very well in ADHD. A psychiatrist, yes. Um, they get training in ADHD, but your average medical doctor, they get trained in depression and anxiety. They're pretty good at treating that. They recognize it. But for the most part, uh, not ADHD. Uh, it's not taught in medical schools. Uh, it's not taught in residencies for primary care doctors. It's something we're trying to change. Um, I've been working with the American Academy of Family um, Physicians, for example, um, to study the practices of ADHD in uh, family medicine clinics. Um, we're developing uh, the American Professional Society for ADHD and Related Disorders is now developing uh, diagnosis and treatment guidelines for adult ADHD that we hope will help, um, especially primary care uh, practitioners, nurses, doctors, 
uh, who are on the front lines because there are too many adults with ADHD for psychiatrists to treat them. So the frontline doctors have to be able to recognize it and know what it is. And the, the data suggests that many adults with ADHD are, are misdiagnosed as having um, depression or anxiety. When I say misdiagnosed, they actually might have depression or anxiety, but I should say they're only diagnosed for their depression or anxiety. They're treated for that. And the doctor never treats the ADHD. They just, which is why they, and they think, they think that the person's depression is treatment resistant. But in fact, the problem is not depression. It's, it's, they've treated the depression. They just haven't treated the ADHD. And sometimes, sometimes frequently you need to treat both disorders, not just one. Now, is there anything that besides pharmaceutical drugs that people could use, like trying to eliminate things in the diet? I've tried the diet thing. The only thing I found that works is I have to work out before I could even talk to a person. There have been many, many studies um, that have tried to look at what we call, you know, non-pharmacologic treatments, non, non-drug treatments for ADHD. And this quick summary is that none of the, all of the, the, the drug treatments for ADHD work much better than any non-drug treatment. Among the non-drug treatments, they have some effect, but the effects are small. And so, for example, on a scale of one to 10, um, let's say a drug treatment might be uh, something like uh, methylphenidate, people might know that as Concerta, or amphetamine, people might know that as Adderall or Vyvanse. Those drugs, we call them the stimulants, they have an effect, it's about, we'll say, eight on a scale of one to 10. Um, a drug like atomoxetine or called Stratera, also guanfacine, and uh, the other one is clonidine, what it's called, capbane and tuanib are the trade names. You know, they have an effect that's around five, a little bit less effective. But the non-pharmacologic treatments, like for example, this, the one with the best data would be omega-3 fatty acid supplements. Um, they have been shown to significantly reduce ADHD symptoms, and that significant just means it's real, but the effect is very small. It's only about two on that scale of one to 10. So um, when people see that, I say to them, well, you, you could try it, but you know, if it works for you, that's great, but it's not gonna work for most people. Um, and that's true of any, first of all, diets, there's no diet has been discovered that works for ADHD. Uh, exercise might be helpful in the short run, as you have mentioned for yourself, you know, you exercise and then you can do something right away, but exercise itself does not eliminate ADHD symptoms. Um, that's been, there've been many studies of exercise that have, have shown that. Lots of studies about um, things like working memory training, uh, computer-based trainings that are meant to have, you know, train your memory, or video games for ADHD have shown some effects that they actually kind of improve experimental measures of attention, um, um, but they're not as good for treating ADHD symptoms. But, but I say stay tuned because there's a lot of these, we call them uh, digital tools that are being developed for ADHD. And I do think in the next 10 years, we're going to start to see some that are going to be very useful for symptoms of ADHD. Have you ever looked into what caffeine does to a person with ADHD? I usually, if I rattle off my energy drink consumption, people are like, that's why you have ADHD. I'm like, it just doesn't, I don't get anything from caffeine, coffee. I could drink a pot and go right to bed. Actually, it would probably make me a little bit more tired, but I usually to take down like six energy drinks a day. And my doctor said, you got to cut that out. It's bad for your heart. I'm like, I don't feel it though. Well, first of all, just because you don't feel something doesn't mean it's not bad for your health. Keep Very that true. in mind. Like, for example, but they are nobody, feel, no, nobody feels high blood pressure, but high blood pressure kills. Um, so just because you don't feel it, I say always listen to your, your physicians about what they say. Um, caffeine has been studied as a potential treatment for ADHD and doesn't have any effect. 
it's not it's not a certainly not recommended and studies show that it's not useful for ADHD uh what I, I'll tell people is that you know people are particularly parents are reluctant to give their kids drugs for ADHD because they're worried it's going to hurt the child and one of the reasons they're worried is that there's so much misinformation in the internet about this. It's always misinformation. It's worse nowadays that the internet is here, um, showing how old I am because I do remember pre-internet er era where there was still misinformation, but it was harder to get. There was in books. Um, but you can, you know, ADHD is something where it's so bad. You can, on Amazon, you can buy, there's a book called something like ADHD is a fraud. There are books like that that are, are feeding misinformation to parents or websites that are feeding misinformation. So they get worried. and it's it's very sad because it, ADHD is one of the most treatable disorders in all psychiatry. Now, I can remember when I was a, a young man, my kids were young, I used to take my uh, sons to the bus stop and there was a young boy, he was probably five at the time, and I could tell he had ADHD. I was very, I suspected it very strongly. He was impulsive, hyperactive, wasn't paying attention to his dad who was at the bus stop. I said to his dad, I said, you might want to talk to your pediatrician about your son. I said, I think he might have ADHD and there's really help for that. And he resisted it and never did it. And fast forward when that kid uh, was, in, was by the time he was a, a teenager, he had he was failing in high school. He, had, he didn't do very well in grammar school. He got involved with antisocial activities, drugs, ended up in jail as a young man. Um, later in life, started to get his life together. But if his parents had treated him, there's a good chance that his life course would have been different. And we know that there's good research that shows people who take medications for ADHD are less likely to get involved with drugs, criminal activity, less likely to be depressed, less likely to have all sorts of negative problems than people who, than people with ADHD who don't take their medications. There's even a great study, I think it was from Sweden, where they show if you look at periods of time, this is for adults, when they're on their medication and when they're off their medication, same person, right? You're just saying on and off. When the, when the person is off their medication, they're more likely to have traffic accidents, more likely to get involved in criminal activity. Um, these are very real and strong data that show um, that these medications have an endure, enduring effect. And yet, uh, if you're a skeptic out there listening to this, particularly if you're parent, or even if you're an adult with ADHD and you're afraid of the medications, they're going to hurt you. Well, keep in mind that the leading medication for ADHD, the stimulant medication, methylphenidate and Adderall, versions of those have been around for quite a long time. I mean, kids have been treat, treated with Ritalin since the 1960s. Um, so we're talking about decades of use. Uh, these medications are used in the elderly to help keep them awake because some older people, they just fall asleep all the time and the doctor will give them a little Ritalin or Adderall to help just to help them stay awake. Um, and old people are very fragile and it's not hurting them, they're doing okay. Um, we know what the side effects are. Um, as long as you've been evaluated by a physician and they say it's, you're okay to take this drug, um, there's really very few side effects to, um, that can't be dealt with by a physician. And always keep in mind, you, if you worry about the side effects of the medication, you also should be worried about the side effects of not taking medication. And that is, you could be, you know, condemning your child to a life of failure and other kinds of problems. I failed all throughout school. It wasn't until, I, I mean, I went to college and got my associate's degree, but 
I didn't really start learning a lot until I started doing the podcast when I could learn it in my own form, which was like, I mean, I don't recommend, I mean, if someone uses a drug, that's fine. If it works for them and that's what they do. Just for me, it wasn't an, I tried it once and it kind of shut my whole brain off. Maybe I might've tried too strong of a dose, but I just didn't like it. My parents weren't about it, but I feel like so you, your parents were what, were what were not about using medications um just worried about side effects and things of that sort so they never uh, there you go see yeah. and again I'm, what i'll tell your audience is that um i think it's a big problem we have in the world is that you have people who are worried about they, they have worries that are not based on scientific evidence they're based on something else and it's like the anti-vaxxer movement right um i know it's a controversial subject in some areas but let's face it you know the data are pretty clear vaccines work and yet there's a lot of people uh, who won't vaccinate their kids. And as a result, there, there are actually pockets of, uh, in, of geographic locations in the U.S. where a lot of these people live that we're seeing outbreaks of the measles and mumps and all these childhood diseases that have been controlled by vaccines because people refuse to take vaccines, uh, even though the evidence is very clear. They help people. They don't hurt people. Medications, you know, I, don't, I can't speak for your experience, but... If the medications aren't prescribed properly, then yeah, they're not going to work. Um, one has to, this is a problem sometimes people with ADHD have because especially if they're getting care from a primary care doctor, not a psychiatrist, they might not be getting high enough dose. They might be getting the wrong medication. So for example, somebody starts uh, taking, uh, let's say the physician prescribes Adderall, which is amphetamine. Uh, it doesn't work for everybody. It works for lots of people, but not for everybody. And so at that point, the physician shouldn't give up. They should try to get the dose right. If it doesn't work, they should try uh, methylphenidate. People know that as Ritalin or Concerta. Other, there are other trade names as well. Um, they should try that. If that doesn't work, they should try atomoxetine, a trade name Sotera, or another non-stimulant such as Intuinive, which is guanfacine, or Kepbate, which is clonidine. Um, a good physician is going to try to find the right medication at the right dose to help a person. And if they do that, almost everybody is going to have a pretty good response to these medications. But anyway. Out of those I, overachievers that you have with ADHD, how many of them actually took medication? Um, I don't have data on that. I couldn't tell you how many of them are on and off medication. But overachievers, what, let's, say, let's say high achievers, high achievers with ADHD. Um, ADHD is a disorder that doesn't, uh, it impacts every level of intelligence and achievement. So you have people who are intellectually disabled who have ADHD, you have people with IQs of 130 that are that have ADHD. You have people who have achieved poorly in life who have ADHD, and you have cheap people who have achieved well in life who have ADHD. Um, now someone might say, well, but how can you how can you achieve like actually some doctors will say this, they say, well how can a person who went through law school and is a lawyer, how can they how can they possibly have ADHD? Because ADHD because we're reactionary and we know how to debate. <laughs> no. Well, the answer there is that because this person, one, had other skills that help them compensate for their ADHD. Oh, by the way, they have an IQ of 130. That helps you compensate for your ADHD. Or they had a parent that was a helicopter parent that was all over them during their college years. They found ways to, to cope with it. Um, or, they're, or they're on medication or they did cognitive behavior therapy. Um, so yeah, it's, uh, it's very, it's very important. I, I stress treatment a lot because there's so much stigma and misinformation about treatment. And I, 
That's why I started ADHDevidence.org because I wanted a place where people could go and get the science about ADHD. We, we're living in an anti-science era, okay? This is unusual. For me, I grew up, I didn't grow up in a, I didn't grow up in a world where there were alternative facts, where you could just, somebody, uh, you know, on YouTube or Instagram or podcast could say something and someone would just believe it because it was said by somebody. We had rules of evidence. We had, why do we think this is true and this is not true? We had rules such as, okay, there's a, whole, there's a scientific method that says uh, this is something we can rely on. And this here, this is something we can't rely on. So when I say omega-3 is nowhere near as good as, as Ritalin or Adderall, I'm not making that up. Okay, I can tell you, I can send you the research articles, and I can show at my website where the, where the facts are that support what I've said. Uh, but there's so much misinformation, people just spouting out their experiences. And the problem we get is that you get somebody who is very entertaining, right? And who's giving their own experience. People start, they like that person, they get they're very engaging. And they say, well, you know, this Ferone guy's kind of nerdy. Why should I believe him? You know, they're not, there's no connection. They don't feel a real connection. They, they tend to believe things when it's said by somebody that they like a lot. And that frankly makes no sense at all. It's just, it's not the way we should, we should evaluate evidence, but it's a, it's a problem society faces here. I think and you have to take gonna, the gambit and try and get everybody's perspective. I mean, as much as you have data that supports your conclusion, I bet there's probably someone out there that has data that supports their conclusion too. It's kind of like the sales pitch you start to recognize. I mean, there's things that'll tell you coffee can make you blind and there's people that'll tell you coffee doesn't make you blind. I mean, you just, people are going to choose what they want to choose with. Right. But what I'm saying is that there's rules of evidence. And if somebody comes to me and says, does coffee make you blind? And I say, well, let's look into it. I'll, I'll go to PubMed. For example, I'll look up on PubMed. What do we know about coffee and blindness? And PubMed will, it might, it might spit out 50 articles that people have studied this. And I can, I'll read those articles and I'll give you, I'll give you my conclusion. PubMed might spit out no articles, in which case I'll say, we know nothing about this. So I don't have an opinion. Uh, PubMed, by the way, PubMed.gov is a repository of basically all scientific papers that have been published on all topics in, in, in medicine, uh, where, uh, for example, if somebody you know, says they're an ADHD expert and they're going to promote this or that, go to PubMed. Have they published their work? Because remember, published work means it's been published, it's been reviewed by other scientists, it's been proved as being solid, good work. There are some people out there on the internet who say they're ADHD experts. I guarantee you, you... Now, I've spoken to, to the ADHD fraud people before, and I can tell you that's a, I don't believe a single word that they say, but also when you start kind of looking at how they're examining things, they've only looked through a small keyhole of a part of a thing and they had a bad interaction. Usually it's that stigma aspect, which was like, it's all in your head, get up, you can grow out of it, this type of deal without fully, which I don't agree with, but also I've listened to people that have talked about using things to eliminate in your diet, which do show a more successful rate than just maybe a two on a scale compared to pharmaceutical drugs. I just think it's a case it, they by don't, case. Though. See, the thing is, the thing is that it's evidence is very complex, right? So somebody might point to one study and yes, I can point to one study that shows that diet is good, but I can say, well, wait a second, there's 50 studies. I, I forget if they're 50, but there's a lot of studies. And when you look at them all together, again, we, we discussed, this is one of the points that ADHD evidence.org we have. I, I, I would encourage anybody with ADHD to at least go and read the international consensus statement on ADHD, which I posted at that website. This is a, a published article peer reviewed by scientists by 
leaders in the field from all around the world, not just me. We talk, I think we had about almost 80 authors on this from almost every, con I think every continent except Antarctica, we found people who were experts in their areas on ADHD. And we said, what are the, what are the main things we know that we feel pretty certain about? And we came up with, I think, 208 facts about ADHD. And they're just basically listed there where people can say, okay, this is what, this is what the data say. It's not our opinion. This is what the data actually say when you look at all the studies, not just one study. And that's that's the problem with, you know, you read a newspaper article, it says, oh, somebody's, you always see, like for example, a few years ago, somebody published a paper about meditation and ADHD, that meditation improves ADHD. And there was this big rash of talk, a lot of chatter, oh, meditation, this is how we're going to cure ADHD. And then more people did studies and they found out, no, it doesn't. That first study was flawed. That first study had problems. And so, for example, in the diet studies, um, a colleague of mine from the United Kingdom published a paper, which basically showed if you div divide the studies into two groups, a group of studies that is, we'll call them well-designed studies. They meet the criteria for a solidly scientific study on the one hand. And then you have another group of studies that are poorly designed. They have problems with them. The diet for ADHD only works for the problem studies. It doesn't work when the studies are well-designed. And what that means is that you know, diets isn't helpful. If, you know, you could have a hundred studies that are poorly designed that say diet works, but if they're poorly designed, uh, then that's, you know. That's, well, how many studies are being uh, tested out for pharmaceutical drugs and who's funding those studies as well too? Mostly it's the pharmaceutical industries that are also funding some of those studies. Now, I believe in if a person doesn't want to choose medication, but they would like to explore another method, I just agree at addressing the fact that it does exist and we can I, try I fully, I, I fully, I fully endorse people's rights to try whatever they want to try. What I'm, what I'm encouraging people to do is to evaluate the evidence so that they don't end up like, the daughter of a friend of mine, my friend called me up and said, hey, could you talk to my daughter? I'm pretty sure that my grandson, her son has ADHD, but she keeps taking, she's taking him to this, this alternative doctor for the last three years. And they're trying all these alternative treatments and he's not, he doesn't seem to be getting better. I said, sure, I'll talk to her. So I call her up, never met her before. Call her up. I said, basically what I've said here today, but I added one thing. I said, I know you're afraid of these medications, but you know what? I said, here's what I suggest. One of the nice things about stimulant medications for ADHD, the amphetamine and, and um, methylphenidate, is that they work very quickly. So you don't have to give it to your child for a year. It, you know, give it to them for one day. If you know you don't like it after one day, you can stop. It's not going to hurt them to give one day, one pill. But I suggest you at least try for two weeks. But just give it to her, you know, at least for a few days. And as you may know, these medications when they work, they work quickly. And she called me back in a few days. She said, "Oh my God, I wish I had talked to you three years ago. That he's a changed the child. This is a this is a different child." And I can't tell you how many adults would also have said the same thing. That for them, not for everybody, but for them, some of them, medication becomes a life changing experience. Now, I want to address something you said. Uh, and first, I want to know. It's, it might be the last thing we have. We only have two minutes left. You mentioned, but the, the drug studies are funded by pharmaceutical companies. So some drug studies can be funded right. by pharmaceutical companies. Right. So I think I think you're implying that there's a problem if they're funded by pharmaceutical companies. Was that, was that the implication? No, I'm. I mean, there is problems with pharmaceutical companies, sure. But I'm talking about just business influenced research, much like there's 
you know, academic influence research as well, too. If you're getting funding from something, I mean, we know about this because the history of tobacco, but it happens in plenty of other scenarios. And I've had plenty of other people on here to discuss that about. I was just bringing up that as a question of how many studies are actually being performed for pharmaceutical drugs. I want to explain something that there's a lot. I don't have the number. There's lots, but um, when when you think, when you, and you, you're right. Sometimes companies like tobacco companies, they'll influence people to, you know, they'll pay a researcher to do a study. And it's, it's one of these poorly designed studies that says what they want them to say. But when a drug is being approved by the Food and Drug Administration to give to people, those studies are, and I've consulted on a bunch of them, those are very well defined and very, very well controlled. Those are, are super like very, very high quality studies. They're higher quality studies than somebody doing the same study you know, in, in, in academia, in, in the academic world. Um, yeah, that's what. But that's what I meant. Was the funding for a study is usually done by someone who's funding that study? Would that be more pharmaceutical companies exploring ways to use pharmaceutical drugs compared to someone that would be? I mean, that's not. We don't. We it's we're mostly a medication country. We usually go to that because it works and it's stronger than any other forms of treatment, like you were saying. But having someone that would have the money to ante up to go try a diet thing as well, too. I mean, it's the comparison of the studies. It depends on who's putting the funding up. Yes, that that's a good point. We have. And it is a real problem because there's not, we don't have a lot of funding for alternatives because companies can't make money off of that. No, no company's going to make a lot of money off of omega-3 uh, because it's, you can't make, you can't get a patent on it unless they reformulate it or do, or do something. So there could be something out there that's very good that we don't know about because you're absolutely right, because nobody's ever kind of been motivated um, now, what happens, sometimes people in academia get motivated and these things are discovered, but you're right. You're very right. It's, if you can't, if an area is underfunded, and this is why we need more funding. ADHD, by the way, is, <laughs> we had a, we looked into this recently in a paper we, uh, I wrote with some colleagues. ADHD compared to other, other um, psychiatric disorders is massively underfunded by our National Institutes of Health. And I think that's another example of stigma. All, the money goes to other disorders. It doesn't go to ADHD. And it's ADHD is, is minimized by it's more dangerous that. ones like schizophrenia and things that. But you see, it's really not fair to say they're more dangerous. This is the, this is the this is the problem um, that we have that people at the funding agencies have this belief, and yet you know people with ADHD are dying younger. They're more likely to commit suicide. They can have academic failure if they don't. That's yeah, but that's a that's a personal that's a. Like for me, it would even it sex sucks because I would I would be the one that would be experiencing it if we did talk about that. But to other ones, like it doesn't damage other people. Like as long as you can isolate the problem, and if it just hurts that person's life, nobody. That's how they view it. That's a good point. Well, look, it's ten o'clock. I've got to, I do have a hard stop well, here. Well, can you promote your links? Because yeah. I do want people to check out your website because I do think it's important. Yeah. Well, it's adhdevidence.org is where I curate evidence-based information about ADHD. So if you're interested in information that scientists have not only created, but that other scientists have said, hey, yeah, this is good stuff. This is accurate information. Go to adhdevidence.org. And I will link it all in the description. It's been a pleasure chatting with you. And thanks everybody for listening to this episode. Have a